continue in our holiday Advent season kind of series, talking about a, a survey of the Old Testament. What we've tried to go for the last few weeks and the next couple of weeks is a, like a 30,000 foot view of the Old Testament. Um, typically we're spending, like, I don't know, it's kind of a weird day because this is the one year anniversary of us coming to Wyoming, um, I guess. I mean, it was the 10th, but the, kind of this is the weekend that we first arrived and showed up and then you guys a week later said yes. I don't know if you're regretting that now, but you're stuck with me. And so then we have, so in the last year, we have gone through the Gospel of Mark and the Book of Acts. So we've been in two books of the Bible for a year. And so to kind of divert from that, we wanted to give you a 30,000 foot view, kind of a, a in the air view of the Old Testament leading to the promise of Jesus. And so I pray that you've been reading through the the, good, the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have one, I think we've got one or two left, unless they've all gone now. We ordered a couple cases. They're gone. Okay, we have none. So you're out of luck for at least a few days. We should have a couple cases coming in this week. And um, my kids and I, we were reading last night about the Ten Commandments. So we're, we were a little ahead of everyone, so I'm kind of slowing them down and get caught up. But the goal is that if you read a chapter a night, beginning... December 1st through to Christmas, you're going to read the whole Old Testament and you're going to land at the birth of Christ. And so on Christmas Eve service, we'll, um, I've got another poem that's a real awesome poem to read. We'll have the kids up and read to the kids and then we're going to open up um, the doors and proclaim the name of Jesus as we walk out of here. So that's kind of where we're going. But at the first of the year, when I get back from Christmas vacation and stuff, we're going to jump into the book of Colossians and we'll be in Colossians for months. It'll be awesome. So until then, we want to focus on this time in the season of Advent where we're going to talk about the peace of Christ. And this week, the Advent candle was peace. And so we're going to do a survey of the Old Testament with three main characters as our goal. Um, we're going to look at Joseph and Moses and David and how they shine a light on how big and powerful God is and how Jesus is the promised hope of all. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Um, thank you for this space in which we have where we can come in here and we can lift our voices in praise. We can open up your word and we can be blown away by your love for us. I pray, Lord, as we walk through these um, a character kind of study of these men of the Old Testament, we would see ourselves in them. Um, we would see our failings and our flaws and we would see how you use them like you use us. That if we would get out of the way, then you would do all the work for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're not going to spend and read um, tons about these men, but we're going to focus on it. If you look in this week, if you read the storybook Bible, you're going to talk about, you're going to see the story of Leah, and you're going to see the story of Joseph, and you're going to see the story of the walls of Jericho crumbling, and then you're going to see Moses and David. And so we're going to focus on three. I think there's a theme that is playing out in this week, and I think it plays out in our hearts that God perfects the weak. That we're perfected in our weakness. That we're perfected in how we are humbly in tune with who we are. We are in trouble when we think we've got it all figured out. We're in trouble when we think that we have arrived. We're in trouble when our pride supersedes the reality that we're human and we're born without complete knowledge. So we're going to look at some men who we often lift up. I mean, if the Old Testament, I forget who said it. I heard multiple pastors say it, um, that if you teach on a Sunday morning or you preach a sermon and you're opening up the scriptures and you don't eventually land at Jesus, then you've not been, it's not a sermon. It's not a preacher preaching if it doesn't end up landing at Jesus. You've just got character studies. 
You've just got nice history. You've got some anecdotes. It must drive to the gospel of Jesus Christ in some form or fashion. So I think a lot of times we look at Old Testament characters, we just look at them. Oh, look at the character of Joseph. He had a cool coat. He was a fashion diva before there was a fashion diva. And we don't look at the truth of what's happening in the life of Joseph. We look at Moses and we see this man who had a speech impediment and he's raised high. We're like, see, if God would just give me a burning bush, then I could do something. Or David. If David was there and if God would just send someone to anoint my forehead with oil, then I could be worth his work. It's not true. So I pray we'll see ourselves in all of these characters. First up is Joseph. The youngest of a series of boys and a little bit of an arrogant lad. Um, now, we don't know a lot about him other in the initial beginnings that he had a dad who had some wealth. And he had a lot of sons. And then Joseph was the, the one that had the apple of his dad's eye. Now, number one, um, what you're going to see what happens real quickly is that the brothers begin to hate him because dad loves him so much and because Joseph is an arrogant little brat. And so his dad gives him a coat, gives him this amazing technicolor dream coat, as I'm told in a play, once or twice it was called. I don't see that in the scriptures, but that's what we're going to call it. He's given this coat, and the point of the coat is it was full of color, it was opulent, but it also had the long sleeves of royalty, and it was a long robe of royalty. It was a father saying, my youngest son is royalty. My youngest son is to be esteemed. Now, in Hebrew culture, in Middle Eastern culture, and for a long time in this culture, the firstborn son was the heir of everything. And as it went down the line, each other's son would get a portion if the oldest son allowed or if the father so declared. Then each, but so the youngest son would have a small pittance of this wealth of this father. So we don't know if it's the father saying, Hey, um, I know my youngest boy, he's not going to get much. Um, so I want to give him praise, or if he just really liked him better. Just a note to all of you parents, if you tell one of your children you like them better than the other, you're a fool. Just saying. Um, you, don't, you don't parent that way. And so here's this young man who's brazen. He's arrogant. I've got my coat. Look at what I have. Well, what happens to him? His brothers sell him off into slavery. They throw him in a hole. He's picked up by slave traders. He's taken off. And so this man, I mean, my brother and I have tension. He's my little brother. And I picked on him way too much. And so there's been tension in our relationship. But he's never, at least verbally, or he's not physically attempted to kill me. He may have wanted me dead, but he's never actually tried to kill me. His brothers wanted him gone. They took him out to the woods, threw him in a hole. He's sold off to slavery. And he lands in this man's house. And so even there, he's trying to honor God with his life. Even though he's in this dire strait, this bad circumstance, he's still trying to honor God with his life. So when Potiphar's wife comes to him and says, Hey, I think you and I would, make, would hit it off, even though I'm married. Joseph says, No, I'm not doing that. He honors God. I am not going to do this. I'm not going to take the advances of a married woman. I am not, I'm single. I'm not going to take these advances. This is wrong. It's outside of God's will. I'm not doing it. What happens to him? He's thrown in jail. He's thrown in jail. So he gets tossed in jail. And he's like, well, I'm doing what's right. I'm doing what's good. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And yet he's still punished for it. And he trusted God through that as well. He then starts interpreting dreams. He's in jail and he's interpreting dreams to the men around him. There's a cupbearer of the Pharaoh and he interprets this dream and he says, hey, you're going to get out. You'll be okay. There's this other baker 
Who's there? Interprets his dream, says, eh, sorry, you're going to die. And he does. So this cupbearer, almost two years later, is at the feet of the Pharaoh. He's bringing the cup to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh has these crazy dreams. He's really tormented by them. Completely twisted inside. Doesn't know what. And the cupbearer remembers this boy, this young man in prison who can interpret dreams. He says, hey, I know someone who might help you out. So he goes and gets him. So Joseph begins to interpret these dreams. And he is given a place of prominence and position. He's given a space to, for his gifts to flourish. The Pharaoh's blown away that he knows what's about to happen. All of Egypt is doomed. There's going to be several years of opulence and excess and then several years of famine. And if we don't plan accordingly, everyone is going to suffer. So the Pharaoh takes this prisoner, lifts him up to a position of power and says, run this show. He had administrative gifts that are would make him a CEO of a company or a logistics expert today. So he administrates it all. And we see this, like his gift. He had this, this arrogance of youth that's humbled by prison. That'll do that to you. He follows and honors God with his life. He refuses. I mean, Potiphar's wife could have made his life a lot easier, but he would not dishonor God. He would not dishonor God. God uses him and takes him to the place to stand next to the Pharaoh and say, you're going to help this, this nation. You're going to help people. So his administrative gifts are used to save all of Egypt. We see this throughout the scriptures, that people are given different levels of skill and gifts and administrative gifts and leadership skills. Everyone has different gifts. The problem we get into is when we want someone else's gift. We, we get all frustrated. I want this, I want that. Joseph began to rest in his giftedness. He shows grace to his family. So as they're starving, his family shows up. The brothers show up. They bow before this man. We need help. Please help us. He reveals to himself who he is. They expect to die. And, I mean, if all of your siblings got together to have you killed or sold into slavery, wouldn't you have a little bit of animosity towards them? Maybe a little bit. Not Joseph. Joseph shows them grace and he shows them mercy. He brings his dad to himself. He saves their lives. He treats them like royalty. He puts grace upon grace on them. So through all of this, Joseph trusted God. He's in a hole. His family has forsaken him. His brothers want him dead. He does what's right and he's jailed anyway. He's given a place of authority and power and purpose. And he used the gifts that God has given him to administrate and to save lives. And then when he has that moment of revenge, he could seal the deal with his brothers and smash them. Instead, he chooses grace. Instead, he chooses grace. In the storybook Bible, we see that this is a picture of Jesus. One day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished, even though he had done nothing wrong. We move on to Moses. So Joseph, gifted, a bit arrogant, used by God, and he trusted God through everything. Moses, he was saved from Pharaoh's fear and cruelty. If you read through um, the story of Moses, and you kind of play around in Exodus, and you see, and then you go into Acts, and you see a little more, but the picture of Moses that Paul or that Luke writes for us in the histories, 
you see that Moses was born during this time when the, there, there, was a, there were wars being waged in Egypt. And the group, the people that were the shepherds and the herders were always rising up in population and waging war against the Pharaoh. So the Pharaoh kicks all of them out and he brings the Hebrews in. This, this peaceful group of people, God-honoring people, they were good at their job. They weren't very large at that time. So he says, you can have all of this land and I want you to just flourish. Take care of sheep, just flourish here. They do, to the point where it freaks the Pharaoh out. They're growing in huge numbers. Lots of people. And any time you have an occupying force, and in your occupying force, the population you're trying to rule and tell what to do begin to get larger than you, you have to find ways to keep them down. You have to find ways of terror to get them down. Well, this Pharaoh was a bit super wicked. So he hatches these plans to conspire with the midwives to kill all the firstborn sons. But it doesn't work. They keep growing, and they keep growing, and they keep growing. And finally, the Pharaoh's had it. This group of people he's brought in over generations has grown, and the next Pharaoh, the next Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh inherits this and says, we have to do something about these people. So he enslaves them. Forced labor, manual labor. You have to work hard. And then he says, we've got to stop this problem of all these births. So I'm going to wipe out all the sons. Well, Moses' mom says no. He's about three months old, takes him down to the river, crafts a basket. You know the story. Sends him down the river. The princess of the Pharaoh discovers him, says, I want a baby. Then finds the same mother that's actually Moses' mother. Will you be his, his nursemaid? Will you take care of him? So then you have this situation where Moses is 100% Hebrew raised in an Egyptian home. He has his mother and his sister to take care of him in the palace of the Egyptian pharaoh. But he's also getting the education of a pharaoh. The education of Egyptian royalty. So he has a mother and a sister who he doesn't really know who they are in his, his youth, raising him to be Hebrew. He knows who he is. But he's also getting all the education and the, the support of an Egyptian king. And he grows. He grows in stature. Uh, about the age of 20, Josephus says that he goes off to war. In Acts 17, we see that Moses had great deeds amongst him. That Moses just wasn't this Hebrew boy growing a palace and one day gets mad and kills someone. That he was a man of stature and deed. And so the extra biblical sources say that Moses was a leader, a natural born leader. So he goes off, makes a name for himself. He's respected in the community. He's respected as a man. He comes back about the age of 40. He shows up in Egypt and he starts to get to his Hebrew roots. And he sees that his people are oppressed and he can't take it. It burns inside him till one day he encounters one of his people being beaten. And he kills this man with his bare hands. He kills this man and he runs. He flees. He knows that he's a Hebrew. Even though he was raised in the palace, he's a Hebrew man who killed an Egyptian citizen protecting a Hebrew, he's going to be killed. So he runs, he flees, he takes off. About 20 to 30 years later, he encounters God in a burning bush. The angel of the Lord appears to him and gives him a mission. We've talked about how every time in the Old Testament you see the words angel of the Lord, it's a foreshadowing, it's Jesus. So you have a member of the Trinity appearing in a bush saying, I've got a job for you. And Moses, of course, says, what? Me? 
So you have a boy who dodged death because of his parents' wisdom and God's providence. Born into Hebrew blood, but Egyptian home. A general, respected, a man of worth and purpose outside of God. In his anger raging inside, he murders a man. Now, I don't, we do background checks for you if you work in our children's ministry, but I don't really read them. So I don't know if we have any convicted murderers in our congregation or not. And I don't really know. I don't really care to know. But think of how Moses is. And God's going to use a murderer, an escaped felon, a man running for his life to proclaim the gospel, to free his people, to show people that truth is coming. So he obeys. So you've got a rebel child, murderer, who also has a problem. with He's not a very eloquent speaker. He's not a man you would put up front on a stage and let him talk very well or very long. He has a problem. And God says, I'll give you the words to say. I'm going to use whomever I choose to use. He frees his people. He leads them out. In the storybook Bible, it's, there's some pretty funny pictures and the kids think it's quite humorous when we read through it where it's the locusts and the frogs and it's pretty awesome and so he sends all these plagues to the pharaoh and says i'm proving i'm god i mean god chose some of the most ridiculous things that could ever happen to say i'm in charge you're not pharaoh you say you're a god i am god you can die i cannot i'm gonna prove i'm god and in the pride of the Pharaoh, he says, no, I'm not going to let it happen. not going to happen until the night that his son is taken. So in the wickedness of the Pharaohs and the generations passed through Moses, they felt one of the ways to control a population was to take their firstborn son. So what does God use to break the Pharaoh? Takes his firstborn son. It's God painting a very clear picture that I am for my people. We see the Passover. The followers of God paint their doorposts. And God passes over them and brings his wrath to those far from God. He leads them out through the Red Sea, takes them across, takes them into the desert. He takes them, gives them the law. They're given the law to prove that they need a Savior. I mean, the Old Testament law and the, the Ten Commandments, the point of them isn't for you to follow them to be perfect. Because you can't do it. No one can. The law is a diagnostic tool that points to the illness that's inside you. So you look and you say, I can't do this. I can't pull this off. This is impossible. I can't do this on my own. Then you need Jesus. The law is a diagnostic tool. The cure for your illness is Jesus. That's why it's so foolish to put rules on people in church. And how, how ironic is it that the rules, the things that we talk so much about in church, the things that are our traditions and our rules, that we get so fired up about are things like how we dress, how we talk, what time we do things, what translation of the Bible we read. They're, they're none of the things that really matter. But if I stand up on a stage with God's word and say, it is not okay for you to cheat on your spouse because God says that's wrong. God's word says that it's against his will for you to have extramarital affairs. That this is not his will. Well, no one goes, oh, I like that. I like that. My... That's, that's cool. Or I say, it is not okay for us to let 
young men go to Libya and die in vain. We should go right behind him and go to the hard places of the world and share the gospel. That that's the call in your life. Not whether or not you wear the right clothes or sing the right songs. Isn't it amazing that in this country we can sit and watch Oprah for an hour, tell people how to live their life, what to do, here's how we can counsel you, it's all about you, here's some self stuff, here's some great things, but you get in front of someone who's going to open up God's Word and tell you what God says, you're like, uh, man, can you be done in 10 minutes? Oprah's on, I need to catch that. Or Dr. Phil, a man that screams at people. He looks people in the face and says, you're an idiot. And you need help. You're right. I am an idiot. I need some help. But yet we open up God's word and we say, I'm not going to follow that. That seems harsh. I just want some rules. Just give me some things to check mark. Thou shalt not commit. I've never cheated on my wife, so I'm good. We're good. How about idols? Thou shalt not. She shouldn't put any false gods before me. I don't have, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't even own a Buddha. Then I begin to talk to you out of God's word saying, well, then if you, if you put your wife on a pedestal, she's your idol, that your joy falls and rises on whether you can make your wife happy. Well, guess what? You're never going to achieve that. You're never going to satisfy her happiness. That's never going to make you fulfilled. Only Jesus will. Well, if my kids would just make the team... If my kid, he's a five-year-old all-star and he should be playing National League soccer or baseball or whatever because he's five and he's an all-star. And if your joy rises and falls on the performance of your five-year-old child, you're a fool. You've made that kid an idol in your life. You've made that child an idol. So Moses, when he's passing down the law, it's, it's rules to be hum, human. It's rules to point you to Jesus. It's not if I follow the Ten Commandments then I've got this thing locked. Me and JC, we're good. It's not what he's saying. He's saying the law is a diagnostic tool to prove to you that you can't do this alone. And through all of this, 40 years in the desert, 40 years of people complaining and whining and upset, 40 years, he gets in a, a moment of rage and anger He uses the power that God has given him in disobedience. He's so fed up with them. And so God says, look, I can't, you've had all this time. You're about 110 to 120 years old now, Moses. And I promised you the promised land and you were going to walk into it, but you disobeyed me. So you get to see it from the mountaintop and that's where you're going to die. And anyone else would have said, what? I did all this for you? And Moses humbly submits. You're the Lord God. He trusted God through everything. We see this play out in the storybook Bible like this. Talk about the plagues and the Passover. God's people would always remember this rescue and call it Passover. But an even greater rescue was coming. Many years later, God was going to do it again. He was going to come down once more to rescue his people. But this time, God was going to set them free forever and ever. Many years later, this is the Exodus. Many years later, once again, God was going to make a way where there was no way. From the beginning, God's children had been running from him and hiding. God knew his children could never be happy without him. Did you catch that? God knew his children could never be happy without him. But they couldn't get back to him by themselves. They were lost. They didn't know the way back, but God knew the way. And one day he would show them. The Ten Commandments. 
God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. Isn't that all of us? Now, I know a lot of, some of you don't remember the moment that God opened your heart because you were very young. It wasn't this altar call that happened, this service, that worship. I think God, God opens our hearts in different ways. For me, it was this slow build to really fully understanding and accepting his love and his grace and his mercy. But I, I know the moment that I, it was, I was done, that he was going to be Lord of my life. It took years later for me to really give him all of my mind and all my... But I know my heart was his at Easter when I was 17. And in that moment, I'll never forget. Like I felt love like I'd never felt love before. I felt acceptance. I felt grace. I just, I felt complete and whole. And I thought, okay, I I got this. So I'm going to start reading the Bible like crazy now. And I'm going to fulfill everything he's got for me. And I'm going to make it. Like I'm going to, I'm going to knuckle in and I'm just going to study like I study everything else. And I'm just going to know it. And I'm not going to struggle with these things anymore. I'm not going to struggle with the sin because God just miraculously changed my heart. I think it was about a week later um, that I sat down with like the leader, my youth leader, and I said, I'm having problems. I mean, I thought I was supposed to get this like miraculous change of my heart. And I've still got like animosity towards my mom. I've still got these issues. I've still got lust. I've still got all these things happening. And I thought that was going to change last week. And this leader who has continues to be, uh, every time we see each other, we've got this like secret handshake. He's a great guy. Um, he's been through all kinds of stuff. And he sat me down. He's like, Mike, uh, I don't know where you got that from, but that's not how it works. This will be your whole life. Your whole life is going to be big victories, small victories, huge step backward, and little steps backward. But the point is Jesus. And every failing that you have is to point you back to Jesus. Every failing you have that you talk to God about, it's to point you back to Jesus. You're never going to be perfect. So I was a little depressed for a while because I thought that's what was supposed to happen. And he was right. I've had great victory over some things in my life and I still have great struggles. And that's going to be all of our lives. So the point of the Ten Commandments isn't, oh, I can do it, I promise. I mean, how many times have you done that? I mean, am I the only one that said, this is the last time, God. This is the last time I'm going to struggle. It's the last time I'm going to think that. It's the last time. And then a half an hour, an hour, a week later, you do it again. And then you think you're worthless. And the enemy just starts whispering in your ear, see, you can't do this. See, you can't do it. How dare you? How dare you lead someone? How dare you talk to someone about Jesus? Well, God knew that was what's going to happen. So in the storybook Bible, it says, after they say, we can do it, yes, we can promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it, no matter how hard they tried. They could never keep God's rules all the time. And God knew they couldn't. And he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send them, send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them. Because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. There's no other truth that you don't have tunneled in your heart than let it be this. God does the work of saving you. You do not earn his salvation. It's a free gift of grace that you have to accept and allow and let him work in your heart. You don't earn his love. He loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. 
This was given to me right before church started. Behold, now both thinner and lighter. I think that might be an iPad reference. A little dig on me, but I appreciate your humor. How about David? We see consistently this man called a man after, Dave, after God's own heart. What a mess is this guy. What a mess. If God can use David, he can use anybody. This guy was a mess. He starts off as a young shepherd boy whose dad doesn't even recognize he has any potential whatsoever. You have the prophet show up. Samuel comes and says, Saul has disobeyed God. There will be a new king. Samuel comes in and says he's been given a vision from God and it's going to come from the house of Jesse. So he says, Jesse, get all of your sons. Get them here. One of them will be king. Lines them all up. Jesse looks at all of them, talks to all of them, sizes them up, and he goes, he's not here. And Jesse goes, what? I mean, these are my sons. Do you have another? Oh, yeah, David, but he's like the harp player that's hanging out in the woods with the sheep. I mean, he's not, he's not a warrior. He can't be king. He likes to play the harp. That can't, he can't be him. Like one of the most emasculating things ever, this young boy who is growing. I mean, he's killing lions and he's killing bears and, oh my, in the woods. He's protecting the sheep. He's, not, he's, he's fulfilling his duty as a shepherd. They totally overlook him. Not David, another last-born young son, overlooked by his dad, overlooked by his brothers. Hey, bring him before Samuel, and he's anointed. You will be king. And he grows in his confidence that God's favor is upon him. We see him completely overlooked by his family, but not overlooked by God. He follows his brothers to battle. A few of his brothers are fighting in um, Saul's army and he's going to go fight the Philistines and they show up and he's just carry the armor. You're not big enough. Um, people debate whether he was somewhere between 15 and 20. We think that he was this young man, high school boy sent off to battle, but he's just not really expected to do anything, but carry things. He shows up and he's offended. How dare you? you're men of God. How dare you shrink away from these people? Even if you're going to your death, how dare you shrink away? So David says, I'll do it. They try to strap all the armor on him. It's not going to work. So he goes and gets some river stones. And he goes and he slays the giant. Now what we forget in the story, um, I think we kind of pass over it. The story of the Bible doesn't really talk about it. It's wise because you're reading this little children. Hey, all he does is he clubs Goliath in the head with a rock. It knocks him down. Then he cuts his head off. We always forget that part. We just think it's like he's really good with a rock. That's an amazing shot with a rock. He can crack a skull and kill a man. He dazed him and he chopped his head off. And all of Israel is going crazy. This young man, this little shepherd boy with a rock, he, God's favor must be upon him. And what happens to David? Saul gets jealous, chases him down. David surrounds himself. He might not be the best fighter there is, but he surrounds himself with mighty men. He has 300 mighty men that are warriors beyond warriors' belief. And he goes and conquers, and he wins land for the Lord, and he vanquishes enemies all over the place. And Saul can't stand it. And through it all, he's trusting God. Through it, he knew. Can you imagine when the prophet of the Lord comes to your house and says, you will be king and anoints you? And someone says, hey, there's a giant there. 
He had a trust in... God said, I'm going to be king. I'm not king yet, therefore I will not die. Give me a rock. Right? He had a trust and a confidence in the Lord because the Lord had declared one thing. He does not shirk on his promises. So David conquers this giant by faith. And through it all, he trusts God. Now, we haven't got, that's next week. We haven't gotten to King's horrific kingship. We'll get there. But through it all, he trusts God. So you see in Joseph, an arrogant kid who trusts God even though his family hates him and wants him dead. We see in Moses, a man who grew in stature, who had God's hand on his life as an infant to protect him from death. And yet, he doesn't feel he's good enough. And God uses him to great length. And we see David, this overlooked boy, this overlooked shepherd boy, who conquers the enemy. The Storybook Bible says it this way, God chose David to be king because God was getting his people ready for an even greater king who was coming. Once again, God would say, go to Bethlehem, you'll find the new king there. And there, one starry night in Bethlehem in the town of David, three wise men would find him. About Goliath. Many years later, God would send his people, another young hero, to fight for them and to save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. The fight against sin. So, how do we apply all this for today? I think, I hope you've heard the theme. Trust God through everything. In 1 Peter, as Peter's writing to the exiled church, they've scattered because of persecution. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That whatever gift God gives you or whatever path he puts before you, you you're to live it all to the glory of God. You're to live it all to the glory of God. Whatever he puts before you, whatever he lays in your path, whatever gift he's given you, he did not give you gifts just to create wealth, to sit around and enjoy all that you have owned. He gives you gifts to leverage for the kingdom. He gives you gifts to make himself famous. I'm not saying that he's called everyone to be poor and to have nothing. He's called many people to make millions upon millions upon millions to bless people. To bless people. But he might not call you to that. He might call you to much less than that. And you're still to honor God with your life. So I thought I'd show you a video. I think a lot of you know this man. Um, You know who he is. So if you don't, I'll describe it afterwards. Today, you're here with the Boots and Hearts uh, uh, Music Festival, but you're here as a part of the Gospel Brunch. What's that that mean for you guys? Oh, it was awesome. You know, uh, we go all over the United States and and Canada, and I've been all across the world. And really what we're all about is our faith in God Mm. and then our family and then ducks, you know, in that order. And it's not just something we say. We believe that God uses people to spread the knowledge of his son. And I always say, if he can use me, he can use anybody. I mean, look at me. But that's really what it's all about. And uh, we shared Jesus and his story. And I think, you know, it's a lot of people that were excited to 
to hear the good news. I, I could tell there were some people that had never heard it before. And, you know, we don't judge anybody or try to pressure anybody. We, we just throw it out there and say, look, it's an option and gives you a more meaningful life. And if we're right, it will give you eternal life. So I think since it comes from our perspective, we're not preachers or we're not representing some kind of religious organization. It helps our message because people realize the only reason we share it is because we believe it to be true. Sure. And I think that's pretty powerful. So I always say that I'll, I do duck call seminars for a fee, but I share Jesus for free because mm. I believe it to be true. So, Was there ever a time in, in your life that you kind of had to ask God to say, you know, give me a forum with which to, or did that just kind of the door just open and you just went through it? Well, what happened in my life was since my parents were not Christians when I was a kid, I had a really tough childhood along with my brothers. And I was real shy and kind of a social introvert, I guess, because, you know, I just, I was raised being a survivor. And uh, when my parents became Christians, it took a while for them to grow and get away from their past. So, you know, I was just always shy. But once I claimed Jesus as Lord, I realized the first year of my Christian life, I'm not going to be able to be shy about this because you know all my friends in high school they were doing whatever and uh i just realized you know what i'm gonna take a stand on this and i really had a personality change and i i think it's a god thing i mean i went from being shy never saying anything to telling all my friends next thing you know i'm speaking Next thing you know, my family's on national TV, and I'm speaking to thousands of people across the world. I mean, it was really, that's how it happened. So I don't know if you know the Duck Dynasty guys or watch the show, um, but in the last four years, they went from this obscure, funny-looking television show about some rednecks, and I take offense to that because I think my neck is at least half red coming from southern Indiana, but... To now, you can't go in Walmart and not see. I mean, they got the big poster of the Walmart here. There's like Willie selling sunglasses, and like here's a rack of different characters' eyewear. Who? Where does that come from? Chia pet. Chia pet. The chia beard. It's nice. So you have all of these things that this family is a part of now, and then you you don't have to look very far to Google this family on YouTube and hear Phil Robertson proclaiming the gospel. Now, they got some stuff in there that I would go, eh, I wouldn't say that. But, you know, they, they, have, they have a faith in Jesus Christ. And they see that everything they've been given is a platform for their faith. They see everything as a platform their whole life. If you took away their TV show, do you really think that these guys are going to stop doing what they're doing already? They were doing it for 20 years before they ever got a TV show. And you've got this young, if you watch the show, I don't know if you watch it. This, the young man here, well, he's not, he's probably older than me. Jace is one of the most sarcastic, outgoing, like, guys on the show. And he says, I was shy. And Jesus Christ is using me in this way. Now I'm speaking to thousands. It's all over. It's all over you. It's all over me. God chooses to use the unexpected to make him glorious. If you had told me five years ago that one of the number one rated shows on television would be a show about faith and guys with beards hanging out in the woods of Louisiana, I'd have laughed in your face. And look at it now. Now, How long will this ride go? I don't know. 
I've tried to find chinks in the armor of this family because I don't ever want to put anyone, especially on TV, on display in a church without invest. I can't find it. It will probably happen, and I'll be really upset when it does. It's happened to me before. But look at how this family leverages everything they have for the gospel. Do they have fun? Do they make money? Do they have jobs? Did you hear what he said? We have a platform that ministers don't have because no one is thinking that we have to do this. One of two things happens when people find out I'm a pastor outside of the church. Number one, either they're like, oh, you're a pastor? And it immediately turns into theological questions because they try to quiz me. Or they try to like turn, what do you believe? What do you think? Or I get complete and total rejection. Oh, you're a pastor? You're one of them. I'm going to go over here. But think about all of you in this room. How you can leverage your position, your life, for the gospel. We just studied Moses, whose God's hand of providence is on him as a baby, to be stuck in a raft made of reeds, sent to a princess on a whim. Maybe she'll save him, and look how God used him. Don't think that the neighborhood you live in, the job you have, the skills he gave you, that those are an accident. God has placed you in unique places with unique skills and opportunity to share his gospel, the good news of Jesus. Will you? We'll do it this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you go into 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing this crazy church in Corinth. I mean, they are a mess. Um, Mark Driscoll, a pastor in Seattle, he did a series on 1 Corinthians and he called it the church gone wild. Like it's a, this church is a mess. Paul starts off in chapter 1, Thanksgiving, thank you, and then he immediately goes into divisions in the church. Because what was happening in this church was certain pastors, certain speakers or elders, one would speak one way and one would speak the other, one was more eloquent, and the church began to divide over who they like to listen to on Sunday morning. And Paul starts slapping them in the face. How dare you? If you preach the Bible... I don't know what it's called that then. Preach the scriptures, God's word, and preach Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, raised from the dead, come for the remission of our sins, you're justified in him and him alone, then it doesn't matter who's saying it as long as they're saying the right stuff. I have different jokes, different ideas, but if you're teaching the scriptures, how can you go wrong? And Paul continues on and says, you can't do these things. And he says, here's why. Here's why you can't pick. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, Paul's like, he's a run-on sentence king. He's essentially saying, God has chosen the foolish because it makes much of him. It makes much of him. That doesn't mean that it's bad to go to college, bad to go to seminary, bad to learn, bad to read, bad to study. And what he's saying is you put a, a man or a woman on a stage in a Bible study in a Sunday school room and you set them in a place of authority and position to help teach these people all around them the truth of the Bible. The person who's going to be effective is the one who realized they're a fool deep in their heart. There's no way they can do this on their own, and they will cling to the Holy Spirit to give them the words to say. That doesn't mean you don't study. It doesn't mean you don't learn. It means you don't walk in saying, yeah, I got this. I studied this last night. I'm an expert. I could pass the test today. You walk in humbly saying, Lord, 
I can't believe you're using me. I can't believe you're using me and honoring you with your word. I'm so terrified because this is important, but yet I'm burning with the truth. I can't keep it inside. So Paul picks up in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I I find that quite humorous. That would be like me walking to all of you going, Hey, you guys aren't that smart. You realize that, right? You're a bunch of dullards. But God's going to use you anyway. I don't, that's not, preaching 101 is not to call your audience a bunch of idiots. But Paul can pull it off because he's Paul. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who, because, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God's wisdom is to use you and me to proclaim his name. And I don't understand that at all. It would be better. I mean, have you ever had that person when you try to share faith with, you're talking to them about Jesus, or you're opening up the scriptures, or you're just sitting there having coffee, and they'll say, well, you know, I read this book once, or I saw an episode of the History Channel, and it says, and they just try to rip apart everything you said. And you're like, really? That's not what we're, ta- we're talking about. Why wouldn't God just show up, come in the clouds halfway, kind of like he did with Moses, just let the shadow of the Lord fall on this planet, we would all glow with the righteousness of God, and we would all go, of course he's real. Of course he's real. Why won't he do that? Because if he comes, he's only coming one more time. And when he comes one more time, it's it. There's no more hope. There's no more chance. It's the judgment. So instead he chooses you and he chooses me. He chooses you. He and his divine wisdom chooses you and me to be the instruments of his good news going out. Guys like Ronnie Smith to go to Libya. If you, if you followed any of the Twitter stuff, which I know most of you don't do Twitter, there were all these kids in Libya with Twitter accounts posting the praises of this man who came to be with them and give them hope. He would go to the homes of the students that he was teaching to tutor them and to share the gospel. He went into the hardest places to share the truth because God gave him a mind for chemistry. God gave him a desire to teach God gave him an ability to explain things that are unexplainable. He was to pursue a PhD and become a professor. And instead, he says, I'm going to take some time off. I'm, still, I'm not giving up that dream. I'm going for that. But for a season, I'm going to take my family to one of the hardest places in the world, and we're going to proclaim the name of Jesus. He choose, chose him. And he chooses you, and he chooses me. He chooses fools. He chooses wise people. And he chooses all of us to proclaim his name. It's not how you would start a Fortune 500 company. But it's exactly how you build a kingdom that puts its central trust and faith and hope in God and God alone. And not in ourselves. So do you see that? Do you see the truth that God can use Joseph, Moses, and David And he can use you. And when you feel weak and small 
and unusable by God. That's the enemy trying to tear you apart so you will not share the name of Jesus. And when you feel good and right and on the right path, don't you dare think it's all you. That God is guiding you. Give him the credit. Give him the glory. And know that you're loved and being used by the king. How do you think peace is going to be brought in during Advent season and after? We've tried to educate people to peaceful existence. That didn't work very well. We've tried to militarily rule people into peaceful coexistence. That doesn't work very well either. We've tried to get everybody rich and wealthy. That hasn't worked very well either. We've tried to put everyone in poverty. That's not really worked very well either in the history of the world. It's only through the proclamation of Jesus Christ that this world will ever know peace. So as we walk into the holiday season, do you see all that life has given you as opportunity? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Um, Thank you for this time that we've been able to sing of your praise through song, that we've been able to open up your word, and we can see um, the big picture view, that you consistently throughout the history of your world have used people in a way that makes you famous and not the person. That doesn't mean that we don't We don't work hard. We don't go to school. We don't strive to know you more in your word. That we're lazy in our devotion or lazy in our prayers and just say, just show up, God. I trust you'll do it. We work hard, Lord. But we always understand that underneath all of that is the truth of your son. That you provide the skills, the grace, the opportunity for us to share your name. That you don't save us in a saving relationship with you, that we wash ourselves in the blood of the cross so that we can be in your presence just so we can hang out in eternity for you. Until our last breath, we have a mission on this planet, which is to proclaim your name. That means some will have to make the awkward walk in the snow to talk to a neighbor. It means that some will have to speak to a coworker. It means that we'll have to leverage all of the activities our kids are in, whether it's basketball or gymnastics or dance or any sport. We leverage those relationships knowing that people desperately need the truth. Help us to see, Lord. Help us to see all the opportunities. If anyone in this room doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that you begin to open their hearts to the truth, that they will get answers to the questions they've been asking, that ultimately they'll fall in love with you. They'll accept your love. They'll understand their hearts have been open to the truth. And they will live lives that put you central. Now, Lord, if those in the room um, that have known you for a long time, I pray they see everyone around them as people desperately in need of Jesus. Help us, Lord. Help us to know you're near. And help us to share the hope and the faith that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. If anybody would like to pray... Um, with me or with an elder, if God has opened your heart to the truth.